Welcome to the Rethinker podcast, asking the why questions to connect faith with culture. Hello, welcome to the Rethinker podcast, the place where we look at scripture, God's laws, Jesus' parables, and other aspects of faith to extract deeper meaning and often to do a rethink on why God may have said and done certain things. Things that in many cases are misconstrued by our society as dogmatic or dictatorial and certainly archaic. Today we're going to talk about addiction. You know, most often when the secular world talks about addiction, it is disconnected from the action that caused it. One person may have become an alcoholic, but that's not really the fault of the alcohol, or casinos to the addicted gambler, or pornography to the sexual predator, and the like. The unspoken fear is to not associate these actions with anything that God may have claimed as wrong, or as some would say, immoral. So pleasurable actions are good, but addiction is bad. Now that's a subjective argument, and taken on its own, it offers us little empirical resource if the reason for the conversation is strictly on moral or theological grounds. So we are going to get hyper-objective here for a few moments and use our worldview, not just speak of it, to uncover solutions that the world just can't see. Let's start with what might appear to be an obscure scripture from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 46 through 8. All men are like grass, and their glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Surely the people are grass. I'm sure that many of you have watched the show Intervention on A&E, which deals with addicts and brings together family, friends, and coworkers in hopes to really rescue a loved one from the damaging grip of addiction. And during these shows, one of the most common petitions at an intervention is the retelling of the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over again, but expecting a different result. It's the assurance that whatever utopia the addicted individual is looking for, it's only a mirage, slipping further and further away with each repeated action. C.S. Lewis in Screwtape Letters calls this the law of diminishing returns. But hidden inside this definition of insanity lies a profound fallacy. The addicted individual who was once healthy was doing the same thing over and over again. But at the moment of addiction, a different result occurred. Because no one sitting on a bar on Saturday night walks in the front door thinking, you know, tonight's my night to get addicted. No one who gets on the computer periodically to look at porn clicks to the first website and says, I hope this enslaves me tonight. No one who routinely plays blackjack with his or her friends on Monday evenings and watches World Championship Poker on satellite TV thinks, today gambling will start destroying my life. They simply do the same thing they had done in the past, yet at the moment of addiction, a different result occurs. Now, here's where the shift moves from the moral to the strategic. Remember Apostle Paul's reference about a war happening within his members and making his flesh his slave? Because the difference at the moment of addiction has little to do with the individual. It is far more tied to the individual's physical body, or what the Bible refers to as the flesh. Now, your body, in essence, is its own autonomous entity. It operates independently of your will during many times in your life. The breaths you take, the blood that pumps, the electricity that shoots through your brain as you process these words are all taking place outside of your personal control. And pleasure just doesn't feel good to the person. It feels great to your independent and autonomous body. Once the body has experienced any positive stimulus, it then requires the man's will to fulfill its own selfish need for that stimulus once again. The physical body will incite the man to return to that action by whatever means necessary, from developing fantasies in the mind to sweaty palms to arousal, anything and everything to further that feeling so the man commits the actions once again. 
Once the will of the man has gone down that path repeatedly, the physical body gains more and more dominance. We can say it this way. At the point of addiction, the will of the man has been completely hijacked by the physical body of the man. We can now undercover that the process to domination, the pathway to addiction, is simply continuing the same course of action over and over again. It is not a battle of the will, it is a battle of the flesh. You are at war with your own independent physical body, just like Paul stated two centuries ago. It's much like the moment a gun goes off in a game of Russian roulette. The more time one plays, the greater probability the gun will discharge. It is the repetition that provides the bullets that fill the gun's empty chambers. But while the potentially addicted individual may be the one holding the gun, the gun itself is the flesh of the individual. In other words, the individual does not determine when the gun goes off. His or her physical body does. Unfortunately, leaving the table even prior to addiction is harder than one might think. Keeping with the Russian roulette metaphor, neuroscience and genetics have uncovered important aspects of this addictive game. Geneticists have determined that planted in the genes of each individual is the predisposition to certain addiction-producing actions. England, for example, is considering the analysis of young children's DNA to determine if they have a propensity towards addictive drugs, such as heroin or cocaine. Secular scientists use these genetic predispositional discoveries to legitimize and rationalize certain behaviors. As secular science uncovers these objective discoveries, they erroneously conclude that these actions are part of the evolutionary genetic makeup of the human animal. To reinterpret the quote from The Matrix, to deny one's genetic impulses is to deny, is to deny being human. Bringing these last discoveries back to our metaphorical game of Russian roulette, we uncover that addiction is not played out on a single table. Addiction is birthed on a number of different repetitious actions. There are a myriad of tables on which an individual can begin to play, ranging from drugs to pornography to overeating to violence to gambling and a plethora of other actions. And for each and every individual, certain guns are already partially loaded on the table even before he or she begins to play, depending on their genetic predispositions. Now, let's step back into our biblical worldview for a moment. All the enemy of mankind needs to do to accomplish his agenda of mankind's destruction is to make sure the right game is well disguised and enjoyable enough to play so that the individual steps up to the table with the right gun or guns for his or her genetic predisposition and enters the game. Through clever marketing tactics, progressive ideologies, mammoth financial capital, and a vehement aversion to anything God has called us not to do, not only do these addicted games surround us, but also nearly all tables are now open and available to play. Even worse, the path to one's addiction table and its preloaded weapons can merely be the click of a mouse or the turning on of a smartphone or tablet. So, what are the world's best responses to its own scientific discoveries? One of science's current solutions is to provide pharmaceutical products, in essence to introduce poisons into the body, that reduce the power of the flesh so that the person can enjoy addiction-producing actions longer without the same addictive result. These pharmacological solutions come affixed with a massive list of new consequences. They are stamped on the front of the plastic bottle right under the phrase, Side Effects Include. In many instances, these side effects are more destructive to the physiology than the individual, to the individual than the result of the initial action. Worse, there are plans by some genetic experts and medical institutions to extract DNA samples from human life prior to birth. The thinking is that parents can be warned of potentially addictive future behavioral patterns should they decide to terminate the pregnancy. In England, they are looking to detest, 
test for genetic predispositions for heroin and cocaine in the young. And what does science want to do with the children that have this genetic propensity? Inject them with these narcotic drugs as children so that as adults they no longer desire the pursuit of what they've already been given. Bottom line is that the three best secular solutions to this objective game of Russian roulette are poison, early forced addiction, and death. For the sake of our society, we must demand better solutions. Now, there's no blame to be thrown out here. These secular responses are somewhat the logical conclusion to starting and ending with knowledge. But we, as believers equipped with wisdom and understanding, can provide new pathways to health and healing. But we must do so with open hands, not closed judgmental fists. Okay, so what must we do? First, we must eliminate the compartmentalization mindset. We can no longer afford to compartmentalize society. News programs often describe someone as a sex offender as if this was his or her predetermined identity. But the sex offender was first a man who may have merely done what he'd always done, looked at porn at his leisure, only soon, when his flesh decided it was time, a different result occurred. Consider a television program spotlighting pornography addiction. While the host listens compassionately to the sad stories of his or her addicted guests, there would no doubt be certain audience members that would compartmentalize by saying, well, it might have been dangerous addiction for you, but I'm fine and healthy with my porn. But the very person who is at that moment bellowing out the healthy aspects of pornography could be an addict, a se- even a sex offender, a month later. The person who simply enjoys partying on Saturday nights may be the next alcoholic the following weekend. The person who chose to overeat after receiving an insult may become an anorexic or a bulimic the next week. The casual internet gambler may head to Vegas a year later and squander his family's life savings simply because he or she had done over and over again through his will or his or her will what finally produced a different result in the flesh. Now this doesn't condemn those who are acting in these manners and it certainly doesn't assume that the church doesn't struggle with identical issues. It is merely meant to uncover the strategy and provide ample insights to make future decisions through. God speaks fundamentally about certain actions, especially addiction-producing actions, not to dominate or restrict mankind, but to prevent our own physical and genetic proclivities from dominating us. Let's go back to our scripture from the beginning again. All men are like grass, and their glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Surely the people are grass. Man's flesh is described as grass, and the glory of man is the flower of that grass. The enemy of mankind knows that if he can destroy the grass, he has by default also destroyed the flower. Man's pride and accomplishment may have the capacity to produce powerful, even history-altering impacts, but man's physiology is often weak. God's fundamental laws against certain addiction-producing actions such as sexuality, drunkenness, gluttony, gambling, drug use, speak to the protection of the wheat grass in order to birth the full flower. Over three millennia prior to this moment in history, the prophet Isaiah metaphorically uncovered the process of addiction, the enemy's tactics, and God's reasoning behind his command. Do you see how through the lens of scientific discovery, this verse now opens up a myriad of new objective social solutions? And that's what I mean by creating this understanding, as I referenced in podcasts 12 and 13, taking knowledge and filtering it through God's wisdom creating God's best pre-fall solutions inside of our now post-fall world. Second thing we need to do is we need to create a paradigm shift in the recognition of the flesh over the will. In five words, the creator of mankind unlocked why he must be fundamental when it comes to his creation. Surely the people are grass. Going back to that verse, God is declaring for all of science to hear, process, and respond. Surely people are more physiology than will. We must create a paradigm shift in society. 
We must recognize that man is not only a subjective entity of will, but also an objective entity of flesh. Thankfully, the scriptural metaphor, we have the keys to unlock our human realities, but also the reality of God our Creator. God's law systems speak to the subjugation of the flesh for the fulfillment of the loveliness of the flower, or to encourage man to embark on great accomplishments without being subjugated to his conquered will. Conversely, the casualties of addiction are withered grass, never able to bud into their intended potential as flowers. The nihilism in our society, especially in the young, is the result of a generation never having seen the beauty of the flower, since our nation, through the sanctioning of many addiction-producing actions, is often fostering little more than a collective of withered grass. And what does nihilism foster? Apathy. It is a disturbed sense of numbness, desperately longing for something, anything, to fill the emotional and physical void. And what fills that void most quickly? Addiction-producing actions. And here we can see, even in the last few centuries, how far we've traveled downward. In the 1960s, people, much under the encouragement of men like Timothy Leary, took drugs to enter into something. It was a desire to connect to the divine or create a new level of physical and emotional utopia. Today, most people take drugs to escape from their pain and the misery of their lives. They are withered grass now longing for something, anything, to escape the daily reminder. And so they retreat back into the very things that started the process spinning in the first place. Once again, we uncloak a perpetual system of destruction being covertly utilized by the enemy of mankind, grounded in scientific reality, warned of in scripture, and staved off by adherence to God's law. By its very nature, proven through our own science, sciences, the only safe solution is to void the table altogether. That, my friends, is not fundamental. That is grounded in neurological, physiological, and yes, biblical truth. Just as a secular society cannot compartmentalize the addicted and the healthy, neither can the Christian compartmentalize the individual from his or her flesh. Again, the will is not weak, mankind's physiology is. See Jesus' own words through this lens. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak, in Matthew 26. By understanding and proclaiming that man is far more flesh than will, new societal standards can be enacted to not only liberate mankind from its own manipulated destruction, but also unveil the reality of a loving God who is desperately attempting to protect and prosper his greatest creation, humanity. And finally, we as Christians must be the first to wake up. As you have just seen, we have been given the tools or the sciences to diagnose the situation and the medicine, the Bible, and the biblical worldview to remedy the world's addictive ailments. But instead, we too often attack the ill and leave the medicine on the shelf until Sunday morning. On most Sunday mornings, it's not even ever used because it's seldom removed from its theological medicine chest. It's not that the world is going to moral hell in a handbasket, but that because the church has attacked the ill and not the enemy, the mechanisms by which to ensnare the flesh have been permanently established all around us. From internet pornography to casinos to recreational marijuana outlets to legalized prostitution, etc. Now let's get honest. Many of those hearing these words have been caught in this battle for the flesh. We bought into the unchallenged lie that our repeated actions will produce a similar result. Instead of attacking the world, we as believers need to model something better and let that be the catalyst for change. I promise you, science, building knowledge upon knowledge, will continue to prove that many of the most addictive producing actions are, in their initial stages, physiologically and neurologically beneficial. We can either cower and run from these findings or use them as our greatest ammunition. And I hope you will choose the latter. That's it for this podcast. Thank you again 
Uh, we're going to get strategic for a number of these podcasts and really show you how to interact with your culture in powerful new ways using scripture, using insights, using scientific discovery to really enact incredible opportunities for change. There's a couple ways you can get a hold of me. One way is to reach me on my website, davidwlitwin.com. There you can get really a 360-degree view of who I am, what I do, and what I believe. And you can always reach out to me via Twitter and email and Facebook. I'm happy to talk, and I love to engage. So please communicate with me there. Have a wonderful day or evening, depending on when you listen to this. And remember always to live inspired.